Welcome to The Deal with Yield, your podcast series covering the issues that matter most in crop production. I'm Joel Whipperfirth, Digital Transformation Lead for Winfield United. And I'm John Zook, Agronomist for Winfield United. So Joel, welcome to another Yield Unsealed episode of our show. So we're going to be pulling, if Joel gives me the envelope, uh, true-false questions out of an unopened sealed envelope and answering them on the fly. So today's topic, we're going to talk about insect pressure and control. John, I feel like I'm unraveling the envelope here like Steve Harvey, Harvey did. Oh, see. Oh. <laughs> but I got to make sure I announce the right winner. So I get to ask you the first question though, right? Okay, let's have it. Okay. Okay. Rotation is no longer an effective as it used to be to control northern corn rootworm because the species has developed an extended diapause. Yeah, that's a that's a true, true or false. That's a true question. Uh, you know, and I think the this is you know corn rootworms are such a fascinating creature in that uh, they you know the the females are giving birth to you know somewhere around four to eight hundred eggs and you know their ability to lay them in the soil uh, you know to get down through the cracks and then you, you know as they evolved we were selecting for ones that you know if you were in a rotation. The ones that started to survive were the ones that could uh, that could go dormant in the soybean crop and then come back alive in the corn crop. So in the northern corn rootworm, uh, they came up with extended diapause as a way to delay their egg hatch until uh, they were able to sense some corn roots growing in the ground again. Uh, now the other one is is equally as interesting. Uh, the western variant was able to seek out soybean fields during uh, you know after they uh, mated and, and had live eggs to uh, to lay in the soil. The western ones sought out uh, sought out soybean fields to lay their eggs in. Thereby, the next crop the next year would be would be corn uh, would be corn for them to feast on. So, so the answer is true. So I maybe argue with that a little bit. It depends on your rotation, right? So you could totally disrupt everything, including the markets, corn, corn, bean. So all of a sudden, your soybean variant, well, soybean variant is always hard to get over because most of the time, if we got soybeans in the field, the next year we're going back into corn. I mean, that's probably 95, 98% of the time what we're doing. But if we got the extended diapause with the northern... Yeah, well, if we got a corn, corn, bean rotation, a lot of times we can use that rotation to break up. So it's definitely not as effective as it it used to be, but maybe that's because we've gone corn, bean, corn, bean, corn, bean, corn, bean all over again. And so changing that up might have a little bit to do with it. Yeah. So one of the things, uh, you know, if you're going, well, you know, do I have corn or rootworms is kind of the first question. Uh, long about this time, you might be listening to this episode and this evening you've got a barbecue planned and it's going to go late into the hours. As you observe late into the hours, the fireflies starting to light up the night sky, that's about the same amount of heat units required for corn rootworm larvae to start hatching. Now, uh, fireflies are not corn rootworm larvae. Don't confuse those two. It just means that they take about the same amount of heat units to mature. And that's a good time to grab your five-gallon bucket, uh, a couple gallons of water, and head out to the field and try to drop a corn plant into the bucket and see if you can find a little first or second instar worm squiggling around in your in your bucket of water. And you got to have a really sharp eye because if you... See 
see the first firefly, sometimes I strike out for two weeks after that until those larvae, not that they're not there, but I'm not sure if I can ever find them, until those larvae actually get big enough where I can get third, fourth, so I can actually see a, a white larvae that I can make out to be a corn rootworm. But that's definitely a way to do that. The last couple of years, I've seen, I've been doing rootworm floats, and I've seen some of the most um, rootworm problems in the last couple of years. And then I go, well, why don't we have as many issues standability, or why can't we pick it up in the data with the traits or with the insecticides? And when we get that later season rain in August, a lot of times we'll regrow roots, and that'll help save it. So if we ever, if we get a, if we get a dry August and a really dry fall, which probably do for one perhaps we'll probably see some of the worst current corn rootworm feeding that we've seen in a long time. So those bugs, or the corn rootworms, they're still out there. They're out there every year. In the last couple of years, I've seen them in roves and kind of been going, man, this could be a disaster. But depending upon our rainfall and how we're getting those nutrients really dictates what we see as far as yield and how that outcomes. Yeah, it is hard to scout by by just simply digging a root and assessing how many uh, how many nodes are eaten off or how many roots are eaten off. You know, if you consider that the corn plant has about three rings of roots and you know, estimate that there's about ten roots on each ring, you'd give that a score. You know, one for each ring. And so, if two roots were eaten off on one ring, that'd be a you know a point uh, point two. Uh, and so I, I think one of the challenges, and that's how I do my simple math, because like if, if there was more yep. than 10 fruits possible, it, it would just get into fractions. And, and you I, can't use percentages anymore. Yeah, I'd be out of the game, right? <laughs> uh, so, you know, when I, when I think about this uh, particular corn rootworm feeding, uh, one of the things you mentioned is these roots are having a higher propensity to regrow after tassel. A lot of times we, we assess all the vegetative growth is done or wrapped up prior to tassel. But one of the things we're also seeing is, you know, later nitrogen uptake for corn hybrids. And maybe that's also uh, happening uh, because of the, the the root growth below ground is is able to, to need more demand for nitrogen late season. Yep. So if we can nail everything in season, most of our nutrients are taken, 80 plus percent of them are taken up probably prior to tassel, but that still means we got 20 plus percent. And if we got... And if we got high yield potential, that 20 plus percent could be a pretty big number. So the plants got to really scrape and strive for them needs. So we actually do get root growth a little bit later on in the season. I mean, a lot of times I have to stand corrected because I say, hey, once we're done with above ground, your roots are growing, our nutrients are taken up, it's kind of game over. But what the data is showing us is if we can manage that plant season long, meaning even after tassel, we'll still get a yield response if that yield potential is there. That's a great place to use field forecasting tool to assess that late season nitrogen need. Exactly. One trivia question I got for you. How do you tell, since this was about northern corn rootworms, how do you tell a male from a female northern corn rootworm? Uh... I usually just squish them. And if they have a bunch of eggs out the back, is that how you do it? Yeah, you bet. So I always, yeah, exactly. I mean, they're, they're both green, right? Yeah. And they look like a, they're a green beetle. So you go, how do you tell a male from a female? And squish them, eggs pop out. But then you go, well, what, why, do you, why do you care even? And a lot of times the way we can mitigate those in season is we'll scout them. We'll put sticky traps up at, you know, right prior to tassel to after tassel. And if we have issues and we know we're going to go into a corn on corn scenario or we're having issues with the uh, extended diapause, what we can do is scout for the females. Once we're getting females and they have eggs, meaning they're pregnant, they're gravid, that's what the term is for that, then we'd want to spray those to reduce the egg count just because they'll go down almost three, four feet in the soil and lay those eggs. And that'll, you know, 
be there for the next crop. So that's a one quick way to scout and, and reduce those populations for the next year's crop, especially if you're on the corn on corn rotation and you're thinking about trait system for next year. Awesome. This is uh, when you when you asked me the difference between males and females, I thought, well, I can't Google that one. That that doesn't render good uh, good Google search well, results. Well, when in doubt with any bug, if it's female, squeeze it and you'll see the eggs. And right. If she doesn't have eggs, well, then she's not gravid. She's not going to lay them. Probably doesn't make sense to kill her until she's got the eggs, right? It's easier just to listen to the deal with yield. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Uh, all right, John. Uh, true, false. Corn rootworm only causes crop damage when in the larval stage of its life cycle. Oh, so that is a false, hard false. Okay, so larval stage is when we think about crop damage from a root growth side. And when we think of the rootworm, that's kind of the first thing that comes to mind is we're going to reduce the root mass, um, decrease standability, all those issues. But probably because a lot of times we get rain for regrowth, like we talked about a little bit earlier, a lot of the times if we'll get that regrowth happening in the roots and it's like, well, okay, you have rootworm feeding, but it's not that bad. I mean, I've seen really bad rootworm feeding, but a lot of times we, most of that goes away. Where I do see some of the bigger issues is with the beetles, what happens is those rootworms will get out of their uh, larva stage. They'll go into the pupae stage. Then they'll crawl up out of the um, soil and they'll follow the root all the way up throughout the soil. They'll get to the stock. They can't really fly, or but they can just walk. So they kind of walk up to the stock. And the first nice tender thing they see is silk. So they'll see the silk and we get silk clipping. And so when we're silk clipping, especially right during that pollination, is typically we'll basically, just like it sounds, you won't get pollination on the ear. And so we lose a lot of yield that way. So most of the time, the yield loss from a corn rootworm is, could happen in two forms. It could be from the feeding below ground, but then it can also clip your silks. And the silk clipping is one of the ones that's dangerous that you can sneak up on because you think, well, hey, we made it through the feeding time. But then you got to be paying attention, especially if you don't have the traits out there, um, for that silk clipping to occur. Yeah, so you know, one of the things I find interesting about these corn rootworm beetles is, you know, they're 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 hatching based on soil heat units, and uh, so when they do that, if they're at different depths, you typically can get this delayed release. Yes, and so you'd go, okay, so I've planted uh, BT corn, I've got the I've got some trait resistance against this. And early on, when we were just using one mode of action, that trait resistance would come on early or express early in the plant, but then that protein expression would taper off towards the end of the season. Or the, the other mode of action would come on late season, but wouldn't have good early suppression. And so one of the things we were finding, you know, when uh, before we had crossed these two uh, controls methods together was the control wasn't always as good. But yep. two modes of action in this case, uh, when you deal with Herculex Extra plus YieldGuard VT, that both of those traits coming together uh, allow for expression of that BT protein at a longer distribution during the year, thereby, you know, when they're at different larval stages, the, they can keep on, on feeding. Uh, one of the things that you would see if it was just the Herc Extra uh, or the Herculex uh, protein that was in there, uh, you would tend to see a little bit of bottle brushing uh, where it would start eating and then that protein would, expression would come on and it would die later. Yep. And remember, this is eat to die technology, right? So they've got to take a little bit of bite of it and that protein uh, goes into their gut and it has a little bit of a crystalline structure and it needs to lacerate or basically you know, dehydrate the bug from the inside out. Uh, so if the protein expression isn't very high, they maybe have to take one or two or even three bites uh, in order for that dose to get high enough 
uh, to kill the insect in the larval stage. So, you know, the key point is, is you know, we've advanced uh, different BT technologies as well as we've stacked uh, additional modes of action for BT expression to be longer. Yep. So one note with the bottle brushing is I've seen it in some fields where it looks like, well, geez, it looks like our roots are growing great. There's a lot because that bottle brush will just make that root just enhance that much more. But paying attention to where it starts, you'll see that nodal root come down and all of a sudden it'll break and burst and start to go off in every direction. You know that that root was damaged initially and now you have that bottle brushing effect, but it'll really make your root mass look rather large if you're not necessarily know what you're looking for. And that really signifies you, you, know, you escaped a lot of what could happen and that trait is truly working underground for us. So should you still put insecticide on top of the traits or should you use insecticide in place of traits? So I think that's a big argument. Was that a, was that a question? Or I don't know. I might have added so a true false. So, so, I mean, I think that's a big argument. But, I mean, really, it goes into what your management style is. And if you're corn on corn and you know you have the pressure, insecticide is a great use. Because insecticide gives you the, the zone of protection, right? So it kind of restricts um, the movement of those larvae through the zone. So even though you might have so many that can chew and bite, less chewing and biting is, is more, is better, right? Versus... Um, if you don't have the traits, almost insecticide is primarily a necessity to protect for those because that, that larvae will feed itself all the way up the roots. I mean, if you ever found a corn rootworm larvae, Joel, they're maybe quarter inch long. How do you think corn rootworm larvae, the northern corn rootworm lays her eggs 36 inches below ground? How do you think that quarter inch long larvae gets to the surface? They chew their way all the way through a root. Okay, so eventually they're going to get to the point where you have an, a zone of insecticide to hopefully kill them there, and now you can protect that root zone that way. So insecticide has, has definitely got to play, um, especially if you got the pressure in the field. What about trap crops? Uh, you know, in particular, like uh, I, I see some volunteer corn inside of soybean fields, and then uh, what about rotating out of alfalfa? Yeah, so so sometimes uh, the volunteer corn, you call it a, a trap crop. I mean, a lot of times that's maybe where this uh, Western soybean variant started is because they started going in. Most of the time that volunteer corn tassels late, it silks late, it doesn't express the the trait as aggressively as the as a full breeding line right? right it doesn't have nitrogen out there and those those volunteer plants are always kind of pukey lime green so they don't probably can't make as much protein yep so what happens is guess what that's a that's a feeding place for that corn wortworm beetle to fly that mama's going to raise her eggs in her belly feeding off the silks of that volunteer corn and she's going to go right down and and lay the eggs in the, in that soybean crop and so that's probably worst case scenario um the other thing is rotating into alfalfa uh, one thing to watch out for is sometimes i mean i'm, I'm through the sweet net a lot of times during peak season of egg laying, I'm finding corn rootworm beetles is probably our biggest insect out in that alfalfa. So we know they're laying eggs out there as well. So making sure that you're paying attention to your crop rotation that way is, is important as well. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, the original research on, uh, on re rootworm resistance, uh, some of the trap crops that they used in the research sites uh, were actually uh, pumpkins. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and squash variety. So if you uh, if you if you're, you and your family have a garden or something like that, that's uh, that's always a place where those rootworm beetles come late season and like to feed on those fresh uh, pumpkin blossoms and and kind of harbor down in there. So that was kind of some of the work that they did on the research. The pumpkin patch. Yeah, the pumpkin patch. <laughs> oh, one more thing to note is just because we mentioned rotation and traits. Hey, just because you have traits and in insecticide doesn't always mean that you're protected for the next year. Remember, if your neighbor 
isn't following the same practices, his cornworms can fly over, his beetles can fly over into your field and lay eggs in your field for the next year. So that's always a thing to, that I always caution growers is a lot of times I'll get, hey, I'm not corn on corn. I'm a corn bean rotation. Why do I need to have uh, fully traded corn with an insecticide? I've never seen a corn rootworm problem. Are they managing their insects accordingly? Because their insects soon become your insects. So that's one important note to watch around for that, that I've definitely seen in my area quite that, a bit of. That sounded like a, a Smokey the Bear public service announcement. Only you can prevent forest fires and corn rootworm larvae. Hey, I do my best. I just don't have the danger sign trite quite picked out because sometimes this can change on us. Corn rootworm danger is high today. All right, John. Uh, is it my turn? Who's I turn? think it's your turn. Okay. You gave me a couple questions and that's all I have. Sorry. To I just, so. the, uh, the rootworm high. story is, is always, uh, is always so interesting. Uh, so wire worms, black cut worms and white grubs are examples of early season insects to be scouting for true or false. Uh, true. Um, definitely all early season insects um, that are probably going to affect the seed or the new um, the new crop coming up up until probably V3, V4. So we want to scout for them very, very early. Yeah, and especially if you're breaking sod. Those things tend to pop up really heavily when you're breaking sod. Yep, especially the, the white grubs definitely tend to pop up. Um, the wireworms as well. The black cutworms really got an interesting story to them. So, I mean, 2019... Uh, this year I have, I have a trap out every year for what, six, seven years. I don't know. I feel like I'm getting, feel like I'm saying my kid's age. You need a hobby. Don't you have Netflix or something? Yeah. Every day when I get home, I just go and check my trap and count the black cutworms. Most people watch Game of Thrones, John, just, you know, (laughs) society aware here. So most of the time I get home and I'd have nothing to count. So it was like quick duties, right? This year I felt like I was recounting and recounting every time a storm flew in this or came in this year, I had 10, 12, 15 moths being caught per every storm. So these moths actually fly the high winds, you know, a mile high in the air. They fly the high winds up from the south, and then they'll dump off in a, in a place in the storm to then go lay their eggs. Most of the time, they're going to lay in a greener zone. So whether it's a waterway, whether it's a cover crop, or whether you got a weed patch, something like that, they're going to find a green zone to lay. Um, this year, because of our later planting and because of all those moth flights, we could have some pretty significant black cutworm damage. So about three weeks after the moths flights, we'll see those larvae will, will hatch and get big enough to start basically chopping off your, your V2, V3 corn plant right at that uh, soil surface. And that's, you know, when you think about that, there's, uh, there's some parts of the country that didn't get in in time or were in bad shape. And so, you know, likelihood is if you weren't out there to plant the field, you also didn't cultivate the field. Correct. Which meant that there was a giant ragweed patch or some green cover that got up and going. Uh, and, you know, you're not you're really used to that thing. You're usually used to, you know, we've got everything in. Uh, you got your pre-emergent herbicide down before, uh, before any of these things happen. But in this particular year, it's a prevent plant year in some parts of the country. Uh, other parts of the country, you know, are going to sneak in some corn. Uh, that's probably a good year, a good setup for these black cutworms to come in in places that we've never seen them before. Do the traits that are out there uh, offer us much for protection? Yeah, so the, if you're traded, you do have protection on black cutworm. The, the one reference I would make is, I mean, if you Google handy dandy BT trait table, that most of the time that'll pop up and you can look at it. They got a really nice trait table put together where you can say, here's my trait, here's the protection I get. Most of the time, black cutworm is going to fall into that. But remember, hey, it's still a bite to die and that trait has to be 
readily expressed. So it doesn't mean that you can't have some damage, especially with the pressure that I've seen. Um, so scouting is still a high priority to protect your field from the damages that can happen there. And scouting, they tend to like to come out during the moisture times of the of the day. So evening hours, really, really early morning before the sun is out. Uh, otherwise, if you're out there during normal business hours, uh, you probably have to kind of scratch below the surface and look for some clipped plants. Yep. So first thing is clip plants, right? If you don't see the plants or you can't roll the crop anymore where you could have rolled it three days ago, go right to that spot. And then probably one to two inches down is where you're going to find them. Typically right in the area of where those clip plants are and they'll be a big enough larvae, you should be able to find them. Um, so, so they're definitely out there. One important note that I saw, I told you what, seven years I've been trapping now. This is the first year I've really caught significant numbers. One thing that I noticed in my, in the surrounding fields where my crap has always been placed is I got more cover crops and I get more cereal rye in my area. So that goes back to our green comment is we just have this cover crop thing going on and it's a great thing. The cover crop looks good. It all got planted into nice, but now we have more potential for these insects that need to be managed in season. You know, and I think if I remember right, the 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 control method, if you were going to do an insecticide, you'd actually have to make a T-band application, which I'm not sure if you're a millennial that T-bands were even cool or hip, you know, for, for a number of years here. But that's that's one of the only places where you could get some insecticide control. A lot of times our insecticide control is buried down in the furrow uh, next to the seed, whereas those T-band applications tended to happen closer to the soil surface where those cutworms were going to be doing their work. So the best way to control, again, is have traded, have a traded crop. So, uh, and even on the traded crops uh, in the South, uh, some of the things I've seen is that, again, it's all about that protein expression, uh, is that not all of the traits worked perfectly on the black cutworms, especially if they got up to be big, if they made it through their first or second instar stage, uh, feeding on some other things, uh, and and then they came into uh, the, the corn crop. Then uh, that, again, that bite to die technology, they maybe had a bellyache, but it wasn't enough to stop them. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely we got to watch out for the size and the instars. And, and that's why it's important to scout, even if it is during business hours, to see that larvae so you can stage it and know where it's at. Then you know the potential damage you'd have. And usually by about the, you know, knee high by the 4th of July, uh, once you're, it might not be this year, but typically around V5 when that corn plant's hit knee high, that's about the time when, you know, scouting for cutworms kind of goes out of style. The corn plant is too big to, to really, you know, have any damage from it. Yep. So at that point, yeah, exactly. Um, the most you're going to see is maybe a little shot holing here and there. Yeah. Now these white grubs, I, do you see much for white grubs ever? Do you ever run into those? Uh, not too much, a little bit here and there. I don't know if I have any specific stories where I've seen some real huge damage on them. Yeah. So I always, uh, when, when you see a little rooting in the soil uh, and you can smell a skunk, those are the two signs for me of white grubs. And again, you know, typically in a, you know, coming out of sod or you're breaking some exactly. CRP set aside ground. Um, so I, I usually try to smell the skunk and then look down and see if there's anybody rooting around in the soil uh, to see if they've been searching for white grubs. So most of the time I see that in my, in my lawn, um, but in a field that's been worked, um, most of the time we won't have that issue. But if you're coming out of sod or you have cover crops, maybe more potential there. Awesome. All right, John, here we go. True, false question. Uh, you know, farmers uh, have, have really come a long ways on adding uh, seed treatments uh, onto their soybeans, and it's become a pretty common practice. Uh, will adding an insecticide in my seed treatment protect my crops season long, negating the need for further applications of insecticide? 
Let's, so that's a good question. I would say because, so firstly, I would say true. And because of your last part of that question, I'd probably say false. So true, meaning it will protect your crop season long. And I have specific stories where I've walked to the, to the bag and I've walked and found the row where I last had insecticide on versus where grower picked up and had no insecticide on to finish, say bags, had to finish the field with some bags, wasn't treated. I can walk to the row and I can find aphids on the untreated, no aphids on the treated. The reason I maybe say false is because eventually when those aphid populations get so high, eventually the insecticide has overcome and overtaken. So I think the story here is we can gain season-long protection um, to some standpoint, but when the pressure gets high, it comes back to scouting and making sure you're managing that insect for what it's at and the threshold that it's at. And I, I think we experience this uh, even as we genetically try to influence uh pest resistance uh, for aphids in particular into soybeans, or like I think about uh, the alfalfa varieties that have some natural uh, leafhopper resistance. Look, when the going gets tough, they might not like it, but they'll eat on, on those. And that always made it really difficult for the genetics to outpace the, the insect's ability to overcome that. Um, insecticides typically don't cost a lot of, uh, they're not a really high dollar input, uh, but you can get a, you can get a good ROI uh, provided you meet the economic thresholds out there. So I think, you know, the, what, what is it? My, my old agronomist always used to say, always bet on the pest, yep. that whatever that threshold is, uh, it may be a secondary pest or ex- excuse me, it may become a secondary host, uh, but they'll, uh, they'll overcome it. So I, false on the, on the part of seed treatments, insecticides lasting you season long for insect control. Yep. So the, the one thing with the, with the aphids and going out there and scouting, a lot of the times uh, we'll have some byproduct of that insecticide. So you say, okay, do I get insect control? But what we, what we see with some of the insecticides is we'll get a vigor effect. Mm. So I go back to the soybeans and I go, Man, if I dig that soybean, that taproot, that's a crappy root, right? It's not good for taking up nutrients. If I can have more vigorous root growth, have more root hairs, taproot that's straight and goes down, um, which is seen, we call that the vigor effect with the insecticide, I might have the potential to feed more of those flowering nodes later on in the season. So that's kind of like a byproduct or a secondary effect that we get from the insecticides that I think is an important to note is not a lot of times is it, hey, do we get insect control, but do we get that vigor effect? Do we have a bigger root to take care of that plant? Joel, so we talked about aphids. What's your aphid scouting pressure slash threshold to say, go get them, let's, let's make sure we clean up this field? Well, the university. You got to mention that, right? I mean, yeah. so you're going to go right to the university. Yeah, All right, let's university recommendation let's is 250 it. to 300 aphids per plant. So you're a 250 guy or are you a. Well, you know, it's, it's always a, a moving target. I think you've got to take into account, you know, what's the weather, uh, you know, and is it been hot and dry? Because if it's hot and dry, those aphids can't keep up or, you know, they're going to suck more sap out of the plant faster. Uh, the price of soybeans is really important. You know, I'm going to want to protect soybeans and, and have kind of a moving threshold there. Uh, so those would be kind of my two or three pieces that I would include. What would you include? So a lot of times I like to scout the field and this is a little bit more time, but I'll scout the field and I'll try to go back, say, did the population double in three days, right? So maybe I'll go out and find aphids the first time. Okay, you got aphids, so let's watch it. Maybe the next time I'll go out and be, okay, you got 100 aphids per plant. I go back three days and you got 200 aphids. 
time time to get after it, right? Or that could be whatever numbers you feel comfortable based on the economics that you stated of what's the price of beans and and how well do I think this crop is gonna is gonna come back for me. I think one of the common pressures there, John, though, that I see is oftentimes they want to wait till that threshold gets up and they want to apply a fungicide. And suddenly they're in jeopardy of not having the optimal time for anything. How do you handle those conversations? So I always go to, hey, which one is the most critical for the timing you're at? And typically the fungicide is is the most expensive application and it's probably going to give you the biggest return on yield. Um, the insects, when they come, they come. Take care of them when they come. If they're not there on the optimal timing of your fungicide, you should spray fungicide at the right time because if you miss that sweet spot or that peak, your likelihood of getting a response from your most expensive product in the tank has now decreased just because you're waiting to see if the insects ever came. So I'm kind of the spray the fungicide, make sure that you're keeping plant health, especially in soybeans, and figure out if the insects are going to come. And if they do come, take care of them when they do in a timely manner. So on the low side of the threshold, what about all the beneficials out there? I mean, insecticides are broad spectrum. And typically, you know, I, I see these low-level aphid infestations not really doubling in the population. There has to be some beneficials that are keeping this population in check that you'd sacrifice there, right? Yep. So you're sacrificing beneficials. Um, that would be definitely one thing that's going on. The other thing is you might we might be out there scouting for aphids, but a lot of times we forget about maybe the other insects that could be feeding on those soybeans as well. So it's not only the beneficials, we can have some other feeding um, on the on the soybeans that are causing stress. And so if you are timing it right, take into account some of the, hey, what are some of the other insects and can I outweigh that with the beneficials? That's really a tough call. And I can't make that here with you, Joel. I kind of have to be in the field going, okay, what, do I, what am I looking for? What are some of the insects that I see out here? And how can I make that decision knowing what the weather is going to be and the economics are? You've been listening to the Deal With Yield podcast. If you enjoy the show, please rate and review us online or on your podcast app. And for more episodes, find us on iTunes, Spotify, Podbean, and thedealwithyield.com.